You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 33 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I am joined by none other than Thomas Campbell. Tom is a nuclear physicist and an author. In the early 70s, he began researching altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at the Monroe Laboratories, where he and a few others were instrumental in getting Monroe's laboratory for the study of consciousness up and running. In February 2003, Tom began to publish the My Big Toe trilogy, which represents the results and conclusions of his scientific exploration of the nature of existence. By Big Toe, he means the big theory of everything. This overarching model of reality, mind and consciousness merges physics with metaphysics, explains the paranormal as well as the normal, places spirituality with a scientific context and provides direction for those wishing to personally experience and expand awareness of all that is. Tom is credited with popularizing the term out-of-body experience. Thank you for being on the podcast. Well, you're very welcome. Glad to be here, Alex. Let's go straight to the core issue. What is reality? Okay, what is reality? That's a very big question. It's broad. It'll, it, uh, so let's start at, at the beginning. What is, what is reality for most of us? For most of us, reality is our sense data. Okay, it's our sensory input, our sight, our hearing for the most part, and then, of course, smell and touch uh, uh, and taste come in behind that. But that's what creates our reality. Without your sense data, you would be just a point of consciousness floating in a void. You wouldn't have this physical reality. It would disappear. So that would be a good reason to think of, of reality as information. Sense data is just information. Now, I take that a little farther uh, because, being a physicist, uh, uh, I, I um, realized that the, you know, the traditional view of, of reality as being uh, you know, a hard, massy uh, stuff, being this, this solid uh, matter reality, uh, is, a, is really a belief. It's not a, it's not a real thing. And, and in the last decade or so, scientists have come around more and more to agree with me on that. In fact, today, it's, a, it's probably the, the single most uh, growing movement within physics today is seeing this reality as information. That means, uh, for example, uh, before we thought of an electron as a little chunk of mass with uh, charge. And now we tend to think of an electron as a point with the attributes of mass and the attributes of charge. And we've made that change because the experiments that we do as physicists have pushed us to that conclusion. In other words, the, if we describe this reality as information at the basic level, 
You see, a, a, a point with the attributes of mass and charge is exactly the way you would describe an electron in a computer simulation. It's just information. So that is the way physics is going, and I've kind of been in that direction now for uh, since I published these, these books back in 2003. So that brings us to what is reality, is it's information, and it's not only information in the sense of sense data, but fundamentally our physical universe is best described as information. And what scientists call that is a virtual reality. It's where your reality is de defined by data. So given that we, you know, given if, that that's the case, that we are in a virtual reality, then a good way to look at what is reality is looking at other virtual realities. And we can come to some idea about what this means to be in a virtual reality. And a good example uh, that many uh, people have firsthand experience with is uh, The Sims or the World of Warcraft. And now there are dozens more, but that's, you know, my familiarity with computer games kind of runs out after my children got old enough to leave home. So uh, I can't give you too many uh, more modern updates. But anyway, let's, uh, let's talk about the World of Warcraft because that's a, that's a pretty good example and it's easy to talk about. Uh, so that's a virtual reality where the World of Warcraft set creates a reality wherein your elf or your barbarian or whoever the other characters are um, play. They interact and do whatever they can do there. You know, they can walk and run and fight and, you know, they can run away or they can, you know, go in, in a house through the door and their reality is programmed so that uh, they have rules of what they can do and what they can't do. For instance, your elf cannot walk through a door, it has to open it. Uh, it can't walk through rocks or trees either. If it stays underwater too long, it drowns. If it jumps off a high cliff, it will get hurt or it will get killed in doing so. So these are all parts of the rule set that define the World of Warcraft reality. Your elf can only jump so high, run so fast, only have so many spells, so many hit points. All of these things are um, part of the rule set that define that reality frame. Let's call the World of Warcraft a reality frame, a digital virtual reality. Okay, now, your elf's consciousness is you. You play the role of the consciousness. Okay, you, the player with the, with the computer screen, and the way it works is that the server that hosts that virtual reality sends you a data stream which lets you see what's going on and what your elf is doing and what else is going on in your elf's environment. And you um, send the data stream back to the server telling it what, you're, what you want your elf to do. Does your elf run or fight or dance or whatever it is? It, your elf can't do anything. It just sits there, stands there and doesn't do anything at all if you don't give it instructions. So the elf is called an avatar. That's your body in this World of Warcraft game. And you, the consciousness, okay, are the, are the player. Now, here's a, an interesting idea. You, the consciousness, cannot exist in the same reality frame as the elf, the body, the avatar. You see, if a, if a 
consciousness, well, well, let's, let's back up. You, the consciousness, have to exist in the same reality frame as the server. Okay? You and the server are part of the same reality frame, but the elf is not in that reality frame. It is impossible for the elf to open a door on a building somewhere in the World of Warcraft uh, reality frame and find the server that's creating his reality inside that door. In other words, the, a, a, a virtual reality cannot create itself. Okay? If the elf looks for the, for, the, uh, for the server, it will not be able to find it. The server must be in a reality frame other than the uh, World of Warcraft reality frame. They can't be the same ones, okay? So that's just very fundamental, logical point, that the, the server that creates virtual reality has to be in a different reality frame than the reality frame that it creates with the data that it's creating in the server, okay? Now, we are the same way. That's just a natural and a, and a logical requirement on virtual reality, so if we, as the physicists say, are in a virtual reality here that's computed, then the server that computes it, in other words, the source of this virtual reality, has to be in some other reality frame other than this physical universe. Now, Dr. Edward Fredkin, who was one of the first physicists to come up with these ideas, uh, he called that, that place other. He said, we have this physical universe and its source must be in other if this is a virtual reality, its source must be an other. Okay, now that's kind of an interesting game, right? Now, how does that work, being an other? Well, the way it works in World of Warcraft is the server in other, as far as the viewpoint of the elf goes, sends data streams. Sends a data stream to the elf to make the elf uh, a body or appearance of a body. It's the elf character, the elf avatar, move, dance, fight, run, whatever the consciousness uh, compels it to do. So the elf gets a data stream and the player sends a data stream to the server and the server sends data stream back to the player showing the player what's going on in the World of Warcraft reality frame. So that's how our reality works as well. We are not physical bodies. We are consciousness. We are individuated units of consciousness and there is a data stream going from a server which is in the uh, larger consciousness system, can't be in our physical universe, remember. It has to be another, and I'm going to call that other the larger consciousness system. So we're a consciousness, and we're getting a, a, a data stream from the server in the larger consciousness system that tells us what's going on here in this physical universe, at least in our immediate vicinity of it. And we make choices for our avatar, which would be that body that we see. We make choices and those choices then animate the avatar. So that would mean everything that we see now as physical in this physical universe is information. And that's what the physics experiments are telling us. It's, it, uh, it's really information. It's not hard, solid stuff. Way back at the double slit experiment was the first uh, major experiment that said, you know, this reality is not a physical reality. It's not objective. And since then, there have been hundreds of other experiments that come to the exact same conclusion. So in any case, that's what I think your question is. What is reality? That's what I think reality is. I think we live in a virtual reality 
which is, means it's information-based, it means it's computed, a simulation, and that we are the consciousness player who is playing our avatar, which is what we see ourselves as the body. Okay, so that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of the fundamental nature of reality. Now, this unit of consciousness that's the player uh, is, is immersed in the game. Unlike you, when you play World, World of Warcraft, you can get up world of warcraft you can get up and uh you know go to the refrigerator and make a sandwich and then come back and everything basically is as far as your character goes your character just stands there and doesn't do anything till you come back well our our game is a little different in several ways the player is immersed so that's all the player does it doesn't take a break it uh basically is in this game in an immersive way Another big difference between them is World of Warcraft is a programmed virtual reality, and ours is an evolved virtual reality. Well, what does that mean? Uh, start with uh, some initial conditions, which would be constants, and uh, you know, kind of the way things start. And we'll say that's a, a ball of plasma of very high temperature, high pressure, uh, relatively small size, and... You know, it uh, starts to evolve at time t equals zero. So when the run button is pushed, this hot, dense plasma starts to expand, and as it expands, it cools. Now, this is happening in a simulation, right? This is a simulation in a computer. You have the initial conditions, you have the constants, and you have a rule set which defines how things can evolve. That's what the rule set does. It, it defines the, the interactions, if you will, the ener energy exchanges that can take place between you know, um, things that have energy. Okay? It, it's, it's the fundamental physics, as we call it, of this uh, ball of plasma. So then when the run button is hit, the simulation starts, and the plasma expands because it's a very high pressure, and it cools, and as it cools, you know, it uh, condenses some into lumps we call suns, and so on. And then their solar systems evolve out of that, and then there's planets that, uh, that get trapped by the sun, local sun's gravity, and then you have a thing like Earth. And then you end up with um, uh, some inorganic things getting together, maybe some amino acids and others just at the right time with the right stuff. And you end up with a cell, and then the cells evolve and become us. And now we sit down and talk over Skype about what's the nature of reality. So that's all evolution. But it didn't just start itself. It had to start someplace. And it started with the initial conditions in the rule set in a computer simulation. And then it just ran, and it just evolved. So that is how we get our avatar. That's not us, the consciousness. That's our body. That's the physical universe. So that's us, the avatar. And we as consciousness can't be in that same reality. We have to be in other, some other reality, the same reality as the server. So we, the consciousness, the player, we get immersed in this virtual reality game. And that's the nature of reality. Now, why are we playing this game? Because we have first we had this larger consciousness system right and it's the one that created this virtual reality game and it needed to do that because 
it is an evolving system itself. It's just an information system, a digital information system. It's evolving. And the way information systems evolve is by lowering their entropy. That is by avoiding randomness, by creating content. Content can't be random. Randomness has no content. So information systems evolve by decreasing their entropy. That's uh, adding content, if you will, not uh, reverting back to randomness. Randomness would be death for an information system. Okay? And in order to do this, it went through a similar process as did our biology, because that's just the way the fund fundamental process works on these kinds of systems. And that is, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll notice the parallels to our biological evolution. Uh, in order to lower its entropy and create more information, more novelty, more ways that things could be put together, you see, more opportunities for patterns and processes and structure, it found that being just one monolithic thing was very limiting. You can only so much you can do with one monolithic thing. So the way to create more novelty and more ways of, of interaction would to break that into pieces and now have the pieces interact. Okay, now you have, if you give each of those pieces free will, then the interactions are unique to those things that are interacting. Okay, if you don't give them free will, then there is no interaction. Now you just have uh, one monolithic thing with a little finger puppet on each of its ten fingers, and it's, you know, uh, it's playing all the parts. Well, that is, doesn't provide any novelty. That doesn't provide any new ways of interacting. That's just the thing interacting with itself. So you have to give these pieces free will, choice, which just means they can choose, uh, they can make a choice of what to do next. If there's three things that they could do next, then they get to choose which one of those three. So you look at what their choices are and let them pick what it is they want to do based on their own experience and, and uh, so on. So now you have a bunch of, of individuated units of consciousness interacting with each other. That creates a social system. When you create a social system, you now want to find the most um, effective way, you know, the most optimal way to lower entropy within this social system. Because again, that's what the conscious system does. It lowers entropy or it dies. So in a social system, the way you lower entropy and create more structure is by cooperating. Okay? It's a, it has to be a cooperative thing. Cooperating, cooperating means caring. Mean, it means being a part of the whole. Um, as opposed to, on the opposite side, uh, the not cooperating uh, would be, well, I, I, let me say what I name these things. The cooperative route I call love. The non-cooperative route I call fear. With fear, it's not about other and cooperating. It's all about self. There's no trust. Uh, somebody else uh, you know, has something you'd like and you're able to take it from them, then you do because that's what fear does. It, it's all about self. It does what it can do. Now, you, you then uh, probably form packs between other um, 
other uh, individuated unit of consciousness in this fear group, they would form packs so that they could protect their stuff from the other people who'd like to take their stuff. And those other people will form packs too. And then the packs will fight with each other in order to get control over each other and each other's stuff and so on. That's very much the way our world works. We have a very fear-based world. But the way we can lower our entropy and do better is if we grew into a cooperative, caring world. So the, we have the love-based and the fear-based, and what, what uh, consciousness tries to do in its interactions with all these pieces is to grow toward lower entropy states, which is the love-based world. Build structure, cooperate, connections can be made that just don't work very well. It's not very efficient in a fear-based world. So now we've come to the point that we have all these individuated unit of consciousness pieces, and all of them uh, have this mission, or if you like, this purpose to lower entropy. Now, they can do that by the choices they make. That's really all they have. It's information system. All they do is trade information. So they have choices of what information they receive, what information they send, and what they do with that information when they get it. So it's just those choices that they, that they have. So by the quality of their choices, they can move toward cooperation, toward love, or toward fear. Okay? And, and uh, if you think of this, you can think of it of a big, uh, like a big chat room where you have uh, maybe 10,000 or 100,000 people in a chat room and they're all able to chat with each other, uh, but uh, there are no rules in the chat room. Now, how much traction are you going to get on growing toward love and cooperation in that kind of a situation? That would be very difficult because there's almost no feedback. You're kind of an island all by yourself, and you don't know about the information you get, where it comes from. Is it true? Is it honest? Is it sincere? You don't know anything about it because there's so little feedback to tell you anything. Um, so what you need is a situation that has tighter rules, not just the rules of you're in a chat room and you can communicate and there, uh, that's it. You need a tighter rule set that starts to define these interactions and puts the interactions within context. Well, as you create a rule set to do that, you're creating a virtual reality. In fact, that first, uh, that first reality that we talked about, just like the big chat room, that also was a virtual reality because there is a rule set. And the rule set is, does nothing there other than identify communication protocols and link you know, one entity with another. So there's, there's rules at the base of that, but they don't actually create a lot of feedback or a lot of context for the information being traded. So we need a rule set that, that shows interactions. So there's consequences for the choices that you make. And those consequences don't just evaporate. Uh, they, uh, they mean something. And the consequences have consequences. And the whole uh, experience you have there is a set of causal chains of reactions and interactions with your choices and the consequences of those choices. So now you have a place where you can actually make choices and see how those choices affect yourself and everyone else. So it becomes obvious whether you are lowering entropy or raising entropy. Are you creating more structure? Are you creating more information, more connectedness? Are you able to build things that uh, have meaning and, and uh, contain significant content? 
or is it all about you know gimme gimme this is mine and and uh, I you know I've got it and I can hold it you can't have it this this uh, no trust sort of thing doesn't build much at all it only can build so much before somebody else has enough power to tear it down or take it over anyway so that's kind of the world now so why do we have this this virtual reality this this um Big simulation? Well, it's because the larger consciousness system uh, wanted to create a context for the interactions that would allow these interacting units of consciousness to learn from their choices, to have consequences that stick, that uh, you know have consequences of the consequences of the consequences, that kind of thing. So it creates a virtual reality and units of consciousness are the players, and the physical reality is the game set, just like the World of Warcraft uh, you know, reality frame. That's a virtual reality, and chunks of consciousness play in it so they can make choices and learn to lower the entropy of their consciousness. So now I've just kind of given a, that was a long-winded spiel, but I'm just kind of giving the basic fundamentals of you know what is reality and why is it like that so that gives kind of the context of our reality as a virtual reality based on information which is uh, uh like i say that's becoming the uh, a very uh, well i wouldn't say it's dominant yet but that's a growing movement inside the physics community because it works better that's the better way to describe how the experiments turn out and that tells us what our mission is. We as individuated units of consciousness, not we as, as bodies, we are um, here to grow up. You can call that what you like. It could be increasing the quality of your consciousness, lowering the entropy of your consciousness, spiritual growth, um, becoming love. All of those things then are, are different words to describe what our mission is, what we're here for, what's the purpose of this virtual reality. The virtual reality itself is to give us this, this uh, context, this consistent uh, context that provides us with opportunities to make choices. And those choices can be good choices, we move toward evolving the quality of our consciousness, or they can be poor choices where we uh, you know, move toward de-evolving the quality of our consciousness, that is, raising our entropy. So that's, that was kind of a long talk, but that's, the, that's kind of the, the, the guts of the, the answer to the question of what is reality. Um, if this reality is virtual, uh, like a video game, and as you know, you can play World of Warcraft with your friends and kill each other, and you, you can't hurt anyone because it's virtual reality. So in theory then, if I go out and kill people, I'm not really hurting anyone, but I'm losing the game because I'm not evolving uh, the higher consciousness. So that's a, yeah, that would be losing the game because the game here is to grow up, is to uh, reduce entropy, is the, is the purpose of the game, and that's the purpose of the individual players in the game. So if you go around killing people, then it's true, you're not doing anything other than putting them out of the virtual reality, you know, at that point, and they can always, just like in World of Warcraft, they can come back into the virtual reality with another avatar. So it is just cycling them into another avatar. So it's, uh, you know, you can look at it and say, well, that's not so bad, but it is so bad because it is 
it is uh, going in the wrong direction. As you do that, you're de-evolving. And as you de-evolve, of course, the system de-evolves. Um, because we, as individuated units of consciousness, are the system. You know, we are parts and pieces of the system. As we evolve, it evolves. As, as we de-evolve, it does. We de-evolve enough, and the whole thing goes away. So that's a, that is a, uh, a self-damaging um, process to go around wreaking havoc rather than becoming love and growing up and helping the process evolve further. So yes, you could do that. And yes, you are just putting people out, out of, a, of an avatar. You're getting that avatar out of the game. No, you're not killing the consciousness. The consciousness is uh, immortal in that, in that sense relative to the, to the gameplay here. So if the consciousness can uh, have another experience packet as some other, um, you know, some other avatar. So you retire that avatar. But that's a, that's, that's a losing, that's the wrong strategy in the game. But we have to have this, this idea of the consciousness can, can uh, re-express itself with another avatar because otherwise the, the point of the game wouldn't be able to be met. It wouldn't work. You see, uh, learning, growing up, is an iterative process. Growing up isn't just a, a jump. You don't go from two years old to 20 years old you know, overnight. It's a, it's a process, and it takes lots of iterations. It's a cut-and-try process that's growing up. And you cannot expect to do all of that, particularly when it becomes letting go of fear and, and becoming love, in one experience packet. In one experience package, you don't, you know, that's just not possible. Just like it's not possible to go from 2 to 20, you know, in one day. won't work. So you have to be able to learn over iterative, accumulative lifetimes. That's a requirement of the system. So it's not like I think uh, reincarnation is a good idea, so I stuck it in my system. It's a logical necessity of the theory that you learn accumulatively. So that's, that's why it, uh, you know, it works that way. It's, it's a necessary part. Otherwise, you wouldn't, the, the whole thing wouldn't work very well. But how would you remember? I can't, I can't remember my past life, so I don't really know what I've learned. Or do you mean that the learning is somehow in my DNA in some way? Well, both. It's not the facts that you learn. That's not the part that, that uh, either helps you evolve or de-evolve. It's the quality that you, uh, that you accumulate. Okay? By making good decisions, you move closer to being love, or you move further away from that and closer to being fear. So as you, as you move, let's say you have a successful uh, life packet here, experience packet, and you move closer to being love. You grow up some. The quality of your individuated unit of consciousness increases. The next time you, uh, when that avatar exits and you pick another avatar, you start back with that higher quality of consciousness that you earned. So your evolution moves forward, um, you know, accumulates. That's the way evolution works. Evolution doesn't take great leaps. Evolution accumulates over time. And that's uh, what you do. So the quality of your consciousness is carried along with you from life, you know, from lifetime to lifetime. 
But the, the individual facts of it, you know, did you have a long beard or a short beard? Were you male or female? You know, uh, what were all your children's names and your wives' names and all the rest of the, the details of that particular physical uh, experience packet are irrelevant. That's, they're not important to your next learning experience. Your next learning experience will be, uh, has to start over basically from the beginning where you, where you relearn how to interpret the data and join the game, you know, uh, anew. And you do that because otherwise you would be carrying so much information. We're talking about thousands, maybe tens of thousands of these lifetimes. You, if you carried that kind of information around, it would just be too much. It would be data overload. Besides, by the time you get toward the end of an experience packet, you tend to have already boxed yourself into a corner where you feel like you've been there, done that, you know everything, you kind of are set in your ways, and your learning has slowed down. Whereas when you start over with all that you've learned to that point, you start over, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and you grow and can learn, and you're, no, you're, you're not stuck in the same belief set that trapped you last time you get a chance to do it again from scratch. So it always needs to start with a fresh environment, if you will, a fresh avatar, without the encumbrance of all the mistakes and errors and beliefs uh, and you know, fears and all the things that happened last time would be a burden next time. So you start fresh, but you start fresh with all the quality that you've earned. You mentioned earlier that it's a fully immersed reality, that you can't go away and have a sandwich and then come back. But what about sleep? Could that be a moment when you go away and have a sandwich? <laughs> no, you don't actually have a sandwich there, but you do, uh, you do play. You are a multidimensional uh, uh, consciousness. This virtual reality is not the only virtual reality that you play in. And that's true of most people playing virtual reality on their computers. You know, they play The Sims and they play World of Warcraft and they, they play Minecraft and they play a bunch of different virtual reality games because they all kind of require different ways of looking at things. They, they require, uh, you know, different skills. So it helps, it, it helps you grow by playing different games. Now, we have several different games going on. One that different game that everyone plays is called dreaming. So when you go to sleep and you dream, uh, you are now playing in a different reality game that allows you to make choices that would never be available to you in the physical universe. So the physical reality frame that uh, you know, we call our physical universe, that has a very limited set of choices because the rule set's very tight. Um, you can't just, uh, you know, have things happen to you and have these choices to make like you can in a dream world. So the dream world gives us kind of a place to go practice, to go uh, you know, make choices in, in dramatic ways that we wouldn't have normally, that we couldn't have with a strong uh, uh, rule set. Also, you can uh, you know, do um, things like uh, what do you call lucid dreaming, uh, out of body, remote viewing. You can do those kinds of things, which also put you into a different reality frame with its own rule set so you can also learn there and our our uh, virtual reality we call uh, you know our physical universe 
isn't the only virtual reality game going on even with a tight rule set. There are other uh, physical universes, if you will, that are also uh, active simulators. And, and you can think of this as an entropy reduction trainer, the simulation. Just like you have a pilot trainers, which are flight simulators, this is an, an entropy reduction trainer for individuated units of consciousness. And it's, uh, yeah, it's one that we are, we are immersed in as consciousness. In the video game Minecraft, you can walk and walk and never reach the end. The game just generates more space. Do you think the universe works in the same way? Yes, well, our universe does that. It, it tends to be accelerating. You know, we, the, the size of the universe keeps growing, keeps getting bigger. And it keeps getting bigger as we keep being able to see things that are further away. So that, you see, is a little different way of making a virtual reality. And it's a more natural way of making a virtual reality. And it's more like our virtual reality. So you have the programming, like World of Warcraft, where every, you know, every tree and every rock and every building was planted there by the programmer. The programmer had to write the code to produce those images in that virtual reality and give them the properties of like solids so that the elf can't walk through them uh, and, and that kind of thing. So all of it had to be programmed, every stick of it. Whereas in uh, a more modern virtual reality like the Minecraft, it generates based on probability. If you go into new places, then it generates new maps, new things that are there. And it does that probabilistically. Now, it also has to have rule sets that tell it, you know, the boundaries for what it can generate and how it works. Otherwise, the game wouldn't uh, be very consistent. So there are, it limits itself in, in ways that uh, keeps the game interesting for the players, not just confusing. So that's the way our reality is, too. It's, it's uh, done on the fly, and it's probabilistic. The simulation I'm talking about is not a deterministic simulation. It's not a simulation that takes elementary particles and builds up uh, atoms out of those and then builds up molecules out of atoms and then builds up things out of the molecules. That's not the way the simulation works. That would be a horrendously inefficient way of creating the simulation. The simulation is a probabilistic simulation. It has a rule set. And that rule set can be, uh, you know, computed over and over again under various circumstances, you know, changing one variable at a time to see what kind of probable, you know, probabilities that you could have. How could things probably go together? How, how would things probably interact? But once you get up to the macro level where the action is taking place with these avatars, then it's pretty much a, just a, um, you know, a probabilistic simulation unless you have a scientist who's picking at you know molecules and atoms and elementary particles then you have to get back down to that level but except uh, you know except for that very rare circumstance if you talk about the you know seven and a half billion people here how many of them are engaged in looking at neutrinos you know not very many so there's not a lot of that that the simulation has to do it's basically probabilistic in its nature so when you do something you make a choice and something new happens, then the result of that is drawn out of a probability distribution. And it's a random draw from the distribution that is created by the rule set. So that's how that works. That's why the double slit experiment works the way it does. Our virtual reality is a probabilistic reality.
But if the virtual reality only renders objects if they are observed, like if you put something in a box, it's not really in the box until you open the box? Well, people get confused about that. They, they get the idea, they say, well, if I close my eyes, then you know, everything disappears. Well, that's not the case. It's, it's, it was never there in the first place. You see, that box and the thing you put in the box were part of a data stream. Okay, it's the same way with World of, War uh, World of Warcraft. And if you think, I keep using the World of Warcraft because if you think of it in those terms, it becomes obvious. Oh, yeah, I see how that works. But when you, you talk about it in this physical universe, you have such strong biases believing that this physical stuff is here and has permanency. It's not just information that it makes it very hard. So let's look at the World of Warcraft. When there are no players, nobody has logged on to World of Warcraft. No one in the world is playing it. Do you think the server is just, you know, creating buildings and trees and rocks and monsters running around growling and all that? No, it's not doing anything. It's not creating any of that stuff. It only creates, it only creates its map, if you will, in the form of data streams that it sends to players. There is no place where elves and barbarians run around fighting each other. It's just a data stream that defines those. So if you, if you are looking at the sunset and then you turn around and face east, you're not seeing a sunset anymore. It doesn't mean the sunset disappears. It means the data in your data stream is no longer describing the sunset. It's describing what's in the east, you see. So if you put in a, something in a box and close the box, well, after you've closed the box, your data stream is no longer showing you a visual picture of what's in the box because the box has been closed. So that's all that means. So when you have the, you know, the picture of the, of the Civil War soldier on his concrete horse statue in the, in the middle of the park and everybody goes to bed at night and nobody's walking in the park, no, the statue doesn't disappear. The statue wasn't there in the first place. The statue is just goes into somebody's data stream when they open their eyes and look at the park, then they see trees, they see the statue, they see whatever they can see. They walk behind a building to where they can't see the statue anymore. The statue is no longer, you know, that data describing that statue is no longer in their data stream. So it's just a matter of, of data. What's in your data stream is what you see with reality, just like what's in your sense data stream is what you see and what you feel. And when you are not looking at the statue when you have your back to it, you don't have any sense data from that statue. And we don't say, oh no, the statue disappeared. You don't have any sense data. No, that's not the thing, you see. That's what we believe when we get uh, wrapped up in this being a, a solid reality. We kind of think that statue's there. It's physical. Now, the fact that we don't sense it, that doesn't mean it's not there. But in a virtual reality, it's never there. In a virtual reality, it's never been anything other than data in your data stream. And when you're not looking at it or not involved with it, then you're not getting data in your data stream. And it doesn't have an independent existence, just like elves and barbarians and, and the trees and the water and rivers in World of Warcraft don't have an independent existence if there are no players. They're not, and if there's only one player and he's looking at the mountains in the West, then nothing else is being rendered on that that's on that uh, that world. It's only what that one player is looking at and doing. Everything else, the server doesn't just render stuff just for fun. It only sends out data streams to players. 
So you see, so it's not that if you close your eyes, the world disappears. The world was never there in the first place. It was just data in a data stream. What could you say to people who find this concept terrifying? <laughs> well, first I'd ask, why would they find this terrifying? It's, uh, I think it's a pretty, uh, um, you know, it's a pretty elegant solution actually, because it, it explains a lot of things in physics. You know, a whole lot of stuff in physics. It explains a lot of stuff in metaphysics. It makes a lot of uh, uh, explains a lot of things in theology. It makes a lot of uh, sense in in so many ways. It describes experience. A lot of things that are now called paranormal become just normal because we can understand how they work. I agree with you, but some people I've talked to about your model of reality uh, found it scary that the world isn't there, that it's a virtual reality. Yeah, well, you know, people are uh, very habitual and they like. They feel very comfortable that everything is the same. You know, they don't like change. Many people are resistant to new ideas because change comes with uncertainty. And if suddenly the world is different than they thought, then there's all this uncertainty because they thought they had that old game kind of understood. Now they're in the new game and they're lost because they don't know how it works. So yeah, that's that's just kind of a a fear of of uncertainty, a fear of uh, newness. But that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. People who react that way, once they think about it a while, they uh, will change their mind on that because it becomes a simpler and easier uh, thing to understand than the world we're in now. The Oculus Rift is a virtual reality device. It's a head-mounted display, and it's supposed to be very, very good. But it's not really out yet. But do you think the Oculus Rift or similar devices is going to make your ideas more accessible and acceptable. Yeah, it'll make people more uh, comfortable with the concept of virtual reality because once they get immersed in a virtual reality of their cells, they can see how, quote, real, unquote, it is. It will be just like being in, you know, if it's a really good immersive virtual reality, then it won't be much different at all than, you know, this reality when they take the headset off. So one that's done really well will start to approximate their experience of reality and that'll make them easier to make that uh, make that jump between the two. But there's always um you know, well, there's always resistance to new ideas. That doesn't uh, worry me too much because the logic of this kind of defends itself. You know, the truth is not is is not uh fragile. And this does, you know, it, it explains things in science and it does this It, it explains so many things that are now unexplainable, and at the same time, it doesn't create any new um, mysteries. It doesn't cre- create any new paradoxes. It just solves the old ones. So it's a it's a, it's a fairly successful model in that respect. Now I, I caution people that. You know, I'm talking about a model of reality. I model reality as a virtual reality, as uh, you know, a larger consciousness system, and so on. This is my model of reality, and models are judged based on how well they fit the data. You know, what can you do with them? You know, do they predict new things? Do they, uh, you know, answer the answer the mail, or do they, you know, they fit the data that we already know is is true? Do they fit the data better than the old? the old model. So it's very successful in doing all those things. So eventually it will become more uh um more and more taken seriously and become more and more a piece of physics. That's that's the way virtual reality has been going for the last decade. 
10 years ago, you could count on one hand all the physicists who uh, thought virtual reality was a really great idea and important. And today, every month, I get more, I get papers coming across my desk by, you know, scientists publishing in, in uh, refereed uh, peer-reviewed journals um, claiming that virtual reality is the only thing that explains the data that they get from their experiments. So it's a, you know, you can see uh, physicists from name brand, you know, physics houses like MIT and Harvard and Caltech and, and uh, from Europe and all over the world, you know, sitting around having discussions on virtual reality being the way the world is. It's, it's taken very seriously now in the physics because it, it's a better model. It answers more of the, you know, more of the data, gets answered that way, and it doesn't create any new uh, problems. There is a model called the holographic universe, meaning every part contains an image of the whole. And I heard you say in one of your videos that you uh, you don't agree with this model. It's a metaphor, just like just like the uh, virtual reality, the simulation, you know, and the World of Warcraft that I use to to help explain it. These are all metaphors. When I say the larger consciousness system is a you know digital information system calling it a digital information system is a metaphor that explains you know how it works when you call a universe a holographic universe it's not really a holograph a holograph is a thing that if you shine coherent light through it 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 will make an interference pattern that resembles the you know a 3d you know a, a, a 3d picture that's a holograph. You know, a holograph is a very precise thing as far as physics goes. It's it's a, a two-dimensional surface with that has an interference pattern. You shine the coherent light through it, and now you see the picture that that you that was made when the holograph. You see the picture that was used to make the holograph. So that's a holograph. And to think that reality is there's a there's a coherent light shining through a film someplace, and you know. That makes our reality, of course, that doesn't compute. And the people that write those books and name it that, that's not what they're thinking either. But they're using the word holograph just because it has this idea that any piece of it carries all the information of the whole. Because they find that to be true in reality in general. You know, that that uh, is something that, that seems to work that way. But I see that same thing, of course, but I look at it as a fractal pattern. It's a process, evolution, fractal. Consciousness is the, is the medium, and evolution is the process. And that, you take some simple rules that drive the evolution, and a simple rule set, and let the results of that evolution okay, go back and feed the input. So you make choices and, and you change, you evolve, and then you take that and put it back in the beginning where it now has to evolve some more, and you take that, put it back in the input. It evolves some more, you get an output, and it goes back into the input. If you keep doing that with a simple rule set, you create a process fractal. And fractals, of course, have that same, that same idea that any part of the fractal show you the pattern that creates the whole. So both of those ideas have that same fundamental idea, except calling it a process fractal is a very, uh, is a very good metaphor because indeed, you know, we, this reality is generated in a fractal process because we see that. You know, we can use fractals and, and uh, make fractal 
pictures and they look like mountains and streams and lakes and sky and clouds and, and all sorts of natural things. So the fact that this you know, evolutionary process is a process fractal kind of makes sense in, in many ways. And it exhibits that same, uh, you know, the whole is contained in the, you know, in the, in the pieces idea. Whereas the, the, uh, using the metaphor of the hologram, you're kind of stuck with uh, somebody shining a light through a, a two-dimensional you know, process that then creates images in light. Well, we're not just images in light, obviously. We're not an uh, interference effect. Uh, images of light, you can put your finger through those. You know, you can, uh, pass, they can pass through each other. Um, you know, they're not solid things. So this would be some kind of mystical hologram that uh, creates solid figures. You see, whereas in a, in a simulation, your elf is solid, the trees are solid, and your elf runs into a tree, bounces off. You see, you create solid things with a rule set, not with uh, how light is interfering. So the idea of a virtual reality being a process fractal uh, and being, uh, you know, computed like that, to me, makes good logical sense and it works as a better metaphor than the metaphor of the hologram. But they're both metaphors. You know, metaphors are ways of describing something that you really can't see and measure, right? Remember, the, the, the source of the elf's reality has to be outside of the elf's reality. Well, the source of our, of our reality has to be outside of our physical reality. That means we can't describe it and measure it from on this side in the physical virtual reality. So it's something that's un seen unmeasurable so we have metaphors to describe its function and how it works and then you judge the quality of the value of the metaphor based on how well does it describe it and i don't think a holograph is really as good as describing what we see here as a uh, process fractal is so that's why i picked that one but you know to say this metaphor is wrong and that metaphor is right well metaphors are things that are to describe something they're not really uh exact things you know if somebody says oh she had eyes as you know as deep blue as the deep blue sea well what does that mean does that mean that if you took her eyes and put them in the deep water you wouldn't be able to see them anymore because they'd be the same color it doesn't mean anything like that it's just a metaphor it gives you a sense of of meaning that you're trying to get across well that's the way metaphors are so you know it's it's not the metaphor about hologram is wrong i think it's just not as productive or as good or as useful a metaphor. What do you think the benefits or the implications could be if this model of reality becomes the standard, your model? Well, I think there would be a lot of changes. Uh, there'd be immense changes. You know, and I see it happening in various steps. And I believe it probably will become uh, accepted one day because it does just make sense. It's, you know, it's better physics, better metaphysics, better theology. Uh, it just works better. Uh, as far as science goes, science looks at what works. You know, how does the world work? And if you get good model that describes it, then that eventually will will win out. Anyway, the first big step is being taken now, and that is realizing that reality is virtual. It's information, and we're probably uh, well into that process, uh, at least in the science community. And the scientists are the ones that kind of tell us how to think about reality. So once they get there, then everybody's there kind of by default because the scientists are the leaders there. Those are the ones we look to to tell us about nature of reality. So that one is in the process of happening and on its way. 
The, uh, the second one is when the scientists do come to the conclusion for sure that this is a virtual reality, then they have to see the logic that's inescapable that says it cannot be created here in our physical reality because it's the virtual reality. It has to be created elsewhere in other, as Fredkin says. And once they do that, that will be a huge tsunami in um, you know, philosophical and religious thought because suddenly science, I call scientists you know, the high priests of Western culture, uh, the high priests are the people that tell us what to believe, what's true. And right now, our high priests are the scientists. Um, you know, six or seven centuries ago, the high priests were, you know, religious. And they told everybody else what was true and what to believe. And now it's the scientists have that role. So when the scientists get, get through the virtual reality and, and realize that logic says it has to be computed in other then they have now just made other this non-physical thing that's not in our physical universe, so it makes it non-physical. So this non-physical thing called other is a superset, is our, you know, it's where our origin comes from. It's creating us. So we are the product of this other, and you can imagine that every uh, religion on the planet will start to claim ownership of other. Ah, other, yes, that's the God we pray to, you know, that's other, that's the master of the universe and so on. So that'll be a problem. Suddenly uh, we'll have, uh, you know, people fighting with each other. That's that high entropy, uh, fear-based attitudes. We'll have people fighting with each other to own other, to philosophically own other. And, of course, that will be very counterproductive. If we understand other is just consciousness, it's the larger consciousness system, then we avoid all that sort of thing. So it's hard to say where that, where that will take us, how, how far we might have to de-evolve before we get it and start evolving again, uh, hopefully, hardly any. Hopefully people will get this and understand the bigger picture before we have to go through that step. But anyway, so that's one of the big changes. And then once people understand that consciousness is the computer, Consciousness is the computer that's creating the virtual reality and that we're pieces of this consciousness and uh, all this physical stuff are our avatars, which you get from the idea of virtual, and that this is a social game because we're all interacting with each other, then it's just, again, it's just a logical um, thing. It's, there is no other way to, uh, you know, there's no other way to uh, you know, explain it or to understand it other than the fact that lowering entropy is the key idea because that's, that's the purpose. That's what this larger consciousness system, this, uh, this information, digital information system is trying to do because that's the nature of digital information systems. They lower entropy and survive and grow or they increase entropy and they uh, become random and die and disappear. So by definition, by science, that's lower entropy is going to be the point of this, this uh, larger conscious system. And because it's a social system, you lower your entropy by cooperatively building and constructing and sharing. That makes you know, a much lower entropy system than one that's fighting and struggling and, and you know, clawing for uh, you know, whatever's around. It's all mine. That's a, <laughs> that's a very high entropy system.
So that's, you know, so those things now will be big ideas because one, it's a virtual reality. Well, we're almost there. Two, you know, the virtual reality isn't computed here, obviously, because we are the virtual reality. It's computed in other. Oh, other, the third one is other is, you know, the computer is consciousness. And then that, given that, you have to get to the point that this is all about growing up and becoming love because that's how you lower entropy in this system. So you just kind of, it's a logical trip and there aren't any other uh, logical answers other than, than these that will that'll meet the criteria. So that would then bring us, bring the world's population to the idea that we've got a purpose here. There's some reason for us to be in this entropy reduction trainer and that what we're supposed to be doing is cooperating and caring about other and not being so self-focused and, and fearful. And we're to get rid of fear, and ego is a derivative of fear, as is most of belief. So we get rid of the ego, we get rid of the beliefs, we get rid of the fear, and we begin caring about each other. And now that's what we're supposed to be doing. And then things start to work really well for us. And instead of this kind of ratty place where we live now, we'd have a very nice kind of place to live, and then we'd go on with our evolution. It would go on from there. Evolution is, is open-ended. It never, it, it never gets to a point where it just quits. As long as there's changes that can be made, evolution uh, you know, keeps chugging along. So it would, it would just totally change the way we see each other and the way we see the world. It would change everything. It would, you know, it would, it would change the way we interact uh, socially, you know, it would change religion, religions, it would change economics, it would change everything. Governments uh, would all have a different perspective on our purpose here and what is helping this system evolve and what is trying to kill it, what's running it into the ground. So I think it would make a really big change and it would be a, a very welcome change, I believe. But those are the kind of paradigm shifts we have to go through to get there and I don't know that that'll happen in my lifetime. Uh, may not happen in my kid's lifetime. You know, I don't know. You know, we've we are very resistant to change, and the the, the status quo and the powers to be are always uh, very adamant to try to hang on to the situation they have, which which uh, creates their power. So, it will be a long time coming. But whether that's twenty years or a hundred years, I have no idea. But I think it'll happen. You can also say that people who have been very bad have actually learned the most. I think in the long run it's good. Well, what they'll find is that, uh, that the fear side, the actions that are, that are fear-based, are really actions that, that don't help them but hurt them, that their life will be better and, and not worse if they let go of that fear, that most of the problems and pain and anguish and dissatisfaction and frustration that they have is because they're fear-based. And letting go of that fear-based stuff uh, makes everything better. So it's not, uh, you know, people will realize that the, the way to, you know, what, to happiness, to a better life, to success, to all those things, you know, does not lie in being fear-based. That that's the negative side. That's the destructive side. That's the high entropy side. And people, once they they realize that, then they would probably start trying to go the other way. Because who who among us really loves pain? 
you know, not too many of us, and we realize that we're creating most of the pain ourselves, then uh, you'd have to be a masochist to want to keep on doing that. So once people actually decided they wanted to move toward love, then a whole lot more of them would. Right now, they're just in the system, you know, um, you know, fighting like dogs and cats because that's the way the system works. And if you don't, you know, then you're in trouble. So that sort of thing would change. Do you think the virtual reality is hackable? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's hackable in the sense that you have a rule set, and the rule set defines the way things work. Okay, so just like the elf, we can only run so fast, jump so high, You know, we can't walk through doors. We have to open them. We have all this stuff from the rule set that, that provides constraints. And that's really the, what the avatar does. The avatar represents the constraints of the rule set in the virtual reality. So the fact that the avatar can't walk through a tree means that there's a rule that disallows that. So it's a, you know, in, in ours, that's what's Newton's first rule or first law that says no two things can be at the same place at the same time. You see, so we have these rules in the rule set, and the way the avatar interacts with its environment and with other avatars is really an expression of free will, free will choice as constrained by the rule set. So that's what, that what's going on. Now, you have this rule set, and can you hack the rules? Well, things that, that don't really abide by the rule set can be done. But presently, they can only be done kind of, um, what if there's plausible deniability or, or on the side or in the margins. So just kind of the same with World of Warcraft. I guess some people can hack it, but the hacking has to stay in the margins. Otherwise, it disrupts the whole game. I remember my, my son, when he was playing um, a, uh, uh, a game of, uh, what was it called? It was a Microsoft game where Civilization, I think it was called. And uh, he played the civilization game, and he found a hack where he could, uh, where everybody else was in the Stone Age, all of his competitors were in the Stone Age, he could uh, materialize a Mercedes-Benz with a nuclear uh, rocket launcher in it, and of course wipe out all of his competitors. Well, that really wasn't very much fun after the first time or two you did it, because it just ruins the game. If everybody's hacking and breaking the rules, then the game no longer has rules that you can count on, which means you have more, uh, you know, your game isn't consistent anymore. It's not something where the choices you make, actually, you're sure what kind of effect they're going to have. It's more chaos, and uh, that's not, chaos is never a really great learning situation. Chaos uh, makes it hard to learn, which is why we needed this virtual reality to begin with. So yes, there, you can hack, but it's, gonna, it's relegated mostly to the margins, because otherwise it ruins the uh, entropy reduction trainer and makes it not so effective anymore. Well, like for instance, you can heal yourself with the mind. Uh, there have been studies where people think they are going to get a cure and they are healed and then find out it wasn't a cure and they get sick again. Yeah, sure. The, the, one of the, one of the uh, if we look at the mechanics of how this virtual reality is created, we see that there are a couple of databases that have to, you know, go along with it. And one of them is a database that I call the uh, probable future database. That's all the things that could possibly happen and the probability that they, 
you know, might happen. And of course, it's based on previous actions and previous choices and that sort of thing. So you predict, you predict out uh, just one delta t, which is a tiny little distance in the in this uh, virtual reality game. That's just one time increment, uh, one cycle in the computer, if you like, um, if you're playing a, a, a computer video game. And then based, if that's true, then you can go out one more delta T and, and assuming that that's true, you've got another one. Of course, all these assumptions pile up and pretty soon you're, you're getting pretty ratty predictions if you go too far out. But still, you have this future probable reality and that future probability then, you know, eventually the delta T comes up and you have the present choices are made and either you you did what was predicted or you didn't. If you didn't, then it has to generate new probabilities on back out in the future because of that. And if you did, well, then they got that right. One of the, one of the, the feedback um, systems that we get in this virtual reality is that our intent can modify future probability. So with our mental intent, we can change the probabilities in this future probability database. We can make things more or less likely to happen. And that's good feedback because that means that what we get, what happens, is more of a reflection of ourselves. It, it's us. So you look around you in this reality. Go read the, you know, read the papers and look at the news and say, what's going on in the world? And it's that way because we're the way we are. We create that. It's not that we're the innocent bystanders, but I mean we the people. We all the people, all the critters and, you know, everything here. We create this reality. So it's ours. It's, it's in, uh, you know, it's the way it is because we are the way we are. So that's one of the feedbacks that we get is that uh, what you were describing was the placebo effect. You know, in a, in a world that was entirely objective, mind would not change how the physical body machine worked. It wouldn't matter what you were told. You could be told anything, and your body machine would just do whatever your body machine would do. You see, that's the way an objective world would work. But in our world, it doesn't work that way. We know that people can heal themselves and others with intent. And we know that so well that the um, placebo effect is part of our law. You can't market a drug unless the drug can beat the placebo effect. In other words, the effect of the drug has to be equal to or greater than the effect by that you get for just telling people they're taking the drug and not giving them any drug at all. So you have to beat this placebo effect, and that placebo effect gets harder and harder to beat. A lot of drugs that are out there that passed it before, uh, if retested, wouldn't beat the placebo effect. Why? Because we, the individual beings here, we uh, change our attitudes, the things that we, how jaded we are, you know, how much we believe what we're told, uh, how enthusiastic we can get. And the more we change, then, uh, you know, it's, it takes a little uh, more effort to uh, convince us to, that something uh, is going to happen, you know, if we take this pill. So it gets a harder and harder thing to, uh, to do. Anyway, that's, yeah, so we have these different effects. We have you know, telepathy. People sometimes know what other people are thinking, know the words they're going to use. People have precognitive dreams where they, they dream some particular thing is going to happen. 
and not just that the sun comes up in the morning or something uh, you know trivial like that, but they, they dream some very specific sequence of actions and words, and then it happens just that way. Um, you know, there's lots of things like that that happen. Um, there's bunches and bunches of experiments that fall into the paranormal, like uh, um, experiments where uh, you're going to show people uh, a picture, and the picture could be lovely or it could be horrible. And if the picture coming up, which is a random selection from a com- you know inside the computer, whatever picture comes up is a random selection out of a thousand pictures. But you'll notice that before the picture actually shows. If it's going to be a hor- if it turns out to be a horrible picture, there are things in the body that start reacting to that horribleness, and you can take very small measurements of, you know, voltage potentials in people's muscles and the tension and other kinds of things, and you can actually see they're reacting to the picture before the picture comes up. Well, that can't happen in an objective world, but it happens in laboratories all over the place. You have um, you know, the man, uh, Dr. Emoto, freezing ice cubes, and depending on how he thinks about the ice cube, you know, he gets pretty patterns or he gets not so pretty patterns. And all of that just becomes, you know, normal. All that becomes science in this bigger picture science that I'm talking about. All those things are easily and logically explainable, how they work. So that's, that's part of the advantage of this science. It, it explains more than the, than the old model. Uh, you have, uh, what is it, Pear Labs, which is a bunch of scientists, mostly PhD types, that work on uh, intent modifying random randomness. Things that should be random, they can use their intent to make them not random, even though they're coming right out of a, of a real, honest-to-goodness, random generator. Um, they can bias them one way or another just with their intent. That's been going on for years under immaculate scientific protocols, and of course that says that this is not an objective reality. Mind affects matter just like it does in the placebo effect. And in the, uh, you know, in, the, in the bigger picture, well, that's obvious. They are, they are using their intent to modify future probability. It's, it's not a difficult thing to understand how those things work, how the healing works, how the remote viewing works, what the out-of-body is all about. All of those things that have been studied for hundreds of years um, and have been shown to have substance to them, they're not just people's wild imaginings, they uh, have scientific explanations now. What are you working on at the moment? Well, uh, in the very near moment, I'm going to uh, go to Portugal and talk at an international conference on uh, consciousness. That's going to happen in like a month. And then after that, I'm going to do a a four-day workshop in uh, Marseille, France, And I've got several other uh, uh, not quite so grand things going on back here in the States. I'm going to be at uh, the Monroe Institute for two experiential, um, um, I don't know what we'll call them, uh, experiential, they're not really workshops, but going to give people a chance to go explore in this larger conscious system so they can have it not as as hearsay and somebody else tell them about it, but as their own experience. So those are going to happen in, in August and in um, November. So I've got those things going, and I have for a long time been working on a book about uh, primal male, primal female, which are basically books about gender. What is, you know, what are we? What does male and female mean at the at the fundamental level? Once you take out all the biases 
and beliefs that are cultural. You know, what do you have left? What's the fundamental thing under the hood there? And um, I've been working on that off and on for probably six or seven years. And I'm still, you know, it's still growing in my head and I'm collecting data and doing research on it. But uh, that'll come out hopefully sometime, you know, in the next uh, couple of years. I've got some of the writing done, but still has a long way to go because I'm just too busy to, to spend time with it. So I've got all of that. And besides, you know, this... Uh, this model itself is something that you can continue to, to learn. There's many logical paths, logical conclusions that you get from this, and only a tiny fraction of them have, have been uh, you know, ferreted out and, and written about and talked about, but there, there'll be a lot more. It, uh, it affects how all the sciences and, and uh, soft and hard sciences work and the things that they believe and so on. It, it, it's going to change a lot of things and most of that hasn't been done yet so I'm still learning as I as I go as well you know a theory has to be alive it can't be dead if you says here's the theory and that's it and it'll never change you know then you are uh, probably running on more ego than uh, than good sense because hopefully theories grow to accommodate the new data that you know, may come in. You always have to be open to changing things. If something new comes up that the theory doesn't explain, then either the theory is limited and needs to expand out of that limitation, or the theory is not right. You know, and has a has a problem. But those sort of things should be expected. And theories are live things that that grow and change to meet the uh, requirements of the of the experiments of the data that comes in. And if it fails to meet a whole lot of things, then you you throw it out and find one that's better. Is it true that you've done some work for NASA? I did. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked as a, as a um, uh, what shall I say, an applied physicist since 1972. That's where I started, I think, in my first job. And I've been working in applied physics up until just a few years ago when I retired. And um, wasn't the last consulting job I had, but it was the, uh, probably the next to last. I worked uh, a year or two for NASA, and I worked as a consultant. I'd, I, uh, at about the age 50, I think, or 55, just as soon as I could retire from the job I held at the time, which was in an engineering company, I, uh, I retired to homeschool my children. They were young, and uh, they were coming up against the constraints and nonsense that's in the public school system here so they wanted to be homeschooled so I left my job to homeschool my kids and you know that's uh, it was during that process when I started writing uh, writing the My Big Toe books let's see where was I going with this um, NASA yeah so I retired there and after that became a, uh, a consultant and that worked fine for me because I could do my consulting at home and I could also, uh, you know, just have to go into the office every once in a while when I needed to make connections. But as a physicist, um, you know, my, my area was looking at uh, large systems and seeing how they worked, what their, um, you know, what the risks were, what their vulnerabilities were, what could go wrong. You know, it's that kind of a risk analysis of large systems because when you have systems with thousands and thousands of parts and for, for, for that matter in a, in a big system uh, that I was looking at like the missile systems like the, the NASA system and um, missile systems 
they have you know thousands of vendors all making those probably tens of thousands of parts. So it gets so complicated that you need to have a computer analysis of how all these things are interacting with each other across their interfaces to find out what could go wrong so that you can change the design so that that, that won't go wrong or if it does go wrong you've got a plan B and you need to do this as early as possible because it's hard to change things that are already designed and, and in metal. Much easier to change things when they're when they're still in the conceptual phase. So that's kind of what I what I did. So when I would work like for for NASA, I would get my own task. It was a task that they weren't able to do in house very effectively because they didn't have the proper skill set. So I would get hired and I would spend a year or two working on a product for them. And when I created that product, which was generally some information, some understanding, some idea about how something worked that they didn't understand but they thought might be important, so then I'd give them that, and then I'm done. Then I go off on a different consulting job. You see, it's that sort of thing. So my consulting jobs were varied and were kind of things that I, that uh, though I worked with several programmers, I wrote the algorithms and I had some other people generally doing programming for me. We could communicate mostly uh, without having to be body to body. So it was really a, a good way to, to work when I was also homeschooling my kids. Have you seen any benefits from homeschooling them? Oh, yes, a lot of benefits. And they themselves saw benefits. Um, all three of my children that I homeschooled, I have four children. One of them is much older. But the three that are in the younger set, uh, all three of them, after they had been in college for the first you know, half of the first year or something, they all told me that they were advantaged, that uh, they were much you know, it, that the work was much easier for them than it was for their peers, that they seemed to know more, they could write better, they could, uh, you know, think better, they understood what was being taught in the class more easily than did their peers, and that was because of their homeschooling. So their peers, of course, were the, were the people who went through the public school system who also attended the same college that they did. So they felt like they were advantaged from it, so that's a success when when your own children tell you that but I liked it uh, I learned a lot from it and uh, they learned not only their academic things but they learned to work together they weren't they learned to really like each other and support each other when we first went into homeschooling the three children even though they were reasonably close in age they all had their own cliques in their school group right so where they went to school let's say my my youngest daughter was like in between fifth and sixth grade, and my son was between sixth and seventh, and my older daughter was between, uh, well, it was between ninth and tenth. So they all had their own peer group. They all could, you know, thought their siblings were annoying, particularly I had a son between two daughters. So that, uh, they didn't get along real well. They tolerated each other, but they just weren't all that important to each other because their life was at school, their social life was at school. Their friends were all at school. So once they got homeschooled, the first six months they spent fighting with each other and struggling with each other. But after that, they, start, they started helping each other, being support for each other. And by the end of that first year, they were totally different people. They weren't as arrogant. They weren't as, uh, you know, uh, what can we say, uh, you know, they weren't as cool where 
it mattered a whole lot whether or not you had the right brand of, of jeans, you know, on. That wasn't such a big deal anymore. They, they just kind of leveled out and turned into much nicer, uh, bigger picture people for the homeschooling. So it, it turned out to be a, a, a big success. I recommend it, although not everybody can just walk out of their job and homeschool their kids. That was an advantage that I could do that and then consult. But uh, I do recommend it. It worked out very well. Did the government check so you weren't teaching, according to them, uh, the wrong things, or, or were you left to your own devices? Uh, well, actually, uh, both. In where I live, the only legal way to take your children out of the public school is for religious reasons. So you have to be, or you have to have a teaching certificate for this state. I live in the state of Alabama in the U.S., So you have to have a, a teaching certificate certified by the state of Alabama, or it has to be for religious reasons. And those are the only two legal ways to opt out of the public school system. But under the religious group, now I hadn't have anybody in my family that had a that had teaching certificate that was certified, but under the religious group, I found a group uh, run by the Quakers, and they were... Very uh, cooperative. They talked with me and made sure that I knew what I was doing. And for the first semester or two, they'd come around oh, once every three or four months. And I had to have my children turned in papers to them. Uh, and like not really a final exam, but they had to show their work all through the, the year so that these people could look and make sure indeed they were learning the basic stuff that they needed to learn for their, for their grade. So they had that going on. But other than that, after we got to know them and they got to know us and realized that the, the kids were learning very well, they just said, go do whatever you want. You know, you're, you're free to teach your kids kind of any way you want as long as you keep sending us the, the documentation that shows us that, that uh, they're learning what they're supposed to learn. Uh, you can do it in your own way and in your own time. So we did some interesting things besides just the academics. Uh, we took a you know, a one-month one month tour around uh, the United States where we traveled from place to place to place, just seeing a, getting a bigger picture of what the world was like. And that was part of their uh, curriculum. So we could do all sorts of things. My son would get into reading, and he loved to read uh, World, uh, let's see, uh, what was that, uh, Wheel of Time. And he got into the Wheel of Time uh, uh, fantasy book series. So he might spend three weeks doing nothing but reading all day long because he was really into that. But that was okay because reading was a good thing he needed to practice and learn. So, so you see, you can be very, um, you can let the children do things that they enjoy doing and still learn. Now, of course, he had to also do math and science and other things. But for that three weeks, I just let him go read, or four weeks until he was up to the latest book that had been. Had written, and then uh, you know he was done for a while till the next one got published. So it's it just was an open-ended kind of free school where I let them go in their own way, the way they wanted to, as long as they covered all the the basics that they had to cover. The one thing I did push on a little bit was uh, writing. I made sure that all of them could write well could uh, you know put pen to paper and come up with coherent uh, sentences and, and structure and grammar and tell a, a good story or write a good thesis. And uh, that, 
of course I did because everything you do in school has that as a as a prerequisite, you know, you take history, you have to, you know, you have to write about it. You take uh, science, you know, you have things you have to write. Everything has, uh, has writing as a fundamental communication medium. So I did uh, push that more than other things. I guess the reading and writing were the, were the basic. Other than that, if they didn't like math and they only had to take as much math as they needed to take, they all actually went up through calculus, but, uh, you know that was their that was their choice. I wouldn't made them. I wouldn't have forced them to do math that they didn't want to. But generally, they found all the stuff that they studied to be fun because instead of drilling them um, on it, I explained things and then let them figure it out. And it it was fun. So I never gave them any written tests. Though. I gave them all oral tests. And my oral tests were probably a lot harder than written tests because I would want to determine whether or not they understood the material, not whether or not they had memorized facts. I didn't really care much about them memorizing facts, but I want facts. I wanted them to understand why it was important, what was significant about it, uh, why, you know, is it worth studying and, and knowing these, these things? How does it fit into the rest of the world? So that's the kind of oral test that I would give them. And in a way, this is related to the virtual reality model because it shows how you can shape your own reality. Right. You have to make choices. And if those choices are productive for you, then they're probably good choices. And if they're not, they're probably bad choices. So you get to experiment and see what works and go with the stuff that works and let go of the stuff that didn't. And making a school, my very first semester of the school, I was much more structured because I knew my children weren't all that able yet to work without structure. So my first year was a pretty structured year. And um, after that, not so much. I mean, each year they got more and more independent and went off and learned their stuff on their own and had fun with it. But do you see traits in your children that come from you or, or, or the mother? What I mean is, where is the avatar from? The avatar that is your child? From the data stream or from the parents? That's the rule set. You know, that's, that's the biology and the, uh, you know, the way the DNA works and how it passes you know, that's all part of the rule set. That's the way uh, the rules are defined in this virtual reality. So, yes, they have those that same uh, connection, what they inherit from us, because their, their uh, avatar was created uh, from the genetic material in me and their mom, and that was the constraints then that they had to work with. But this thing about rebirth and the learning curve, learning more each life, is it connected to what avatar you end up in? No, it's not, you know, it's not connected in that, in, you know, there, there's opportunities to learn. What I mean by that when I said no is that there's opportunities to learn in every situation. You know, whatever situation you happen, whatever avatar you get, whatever that situation happens to be, whether that avatar is going to be wealthy or going to be poor or, you know, um, whatever. Uh, lives in this environment or that environment in the west or the east or the north or the south, whatever, there's opportunities in that environment in order to learn. So you have chances, you have uh, uh, a good program of learning wherever you are and whatever you do. And learning is the, is the key thing. So yes, you have biology that, uh, and rule set, and that creates constraints. So if you're born with really short, stubby fingers, you probably won't make a good uh, piano player, you know. So 
you might want to go into something else other than trying to be a, peanut, a pianist. If uh, you know you ha happen to have a birth defect and only have one leg, you know you're not going out for long distance running. So you have all of these biological things that create constraints, but those constraints don't don't uh, separate you from lots of opportunities to grow up and make good choices. There's good choices everywhere. Matter of fact, a constraint will cut off some choices and then open up other choices. It, it gives and it takes away. So where can people get your books or find out more about your ideas? Well, they have several places they can go. www.mybigtoe.com YouTube would be another one. I have like um, 220 videos now up at YouTube. They, they grow every, every month. There's several that go up. So those are on all sorts of subjects. Every time I do an interview, this interview will, will end up there. Every time I do an interview or a workshop, I put it out on YouTube. So it's a, it's a collection of years worth of uh, my talks and interviews and workshops. So you can go there. And if you go there, I know that's an enormous amount of, of, uh, of videos to look at, and some of them are very long. But I would, I would go to the one called Calgary Workshop, and it's in uh, three, de three days, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Friday is just a, kind of an overview of the whole thing, so that would be a good one. And then Saturday is all about the theory, you know, how does reality work? Why does it work that way? And then the third day on Sunday is... Uh, Uh, how to how to um, interact with the larger reality, experiencing the larger reality, uh, remote viewing, healing, uh, those kinds of things. What is what is the larger consciousness system like once you get out of this virtual reality? So it, it goes into the and I do that because I one of the things I tell people is it can't be your truth until it's your experience. So I feel like I need to give people kind of a, an on-ramp to having the experience. So that's why I do that third day on Sunday is to help people have the experience. So these things are not just my experience and they're stuck with believing them or not, but that's not good. It's better if it's their experience. And it's not that hard to gain this experience. It just takes a little effort and stick-to-itiveness and everybody can, can learn to do these sorts of things. So that's, that's the other source. And then the last source is my books. And you can buy my books probably, hopefully, next week at my website. But other than that, you can buy them on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And you can go to bookstores. And if the bookstore doesn't carry it, you can ask them to because I have an international distributor that, that uh, serves all the bookstores. So you can get them anywhere. And if you don't want to spend the money, they are for free on Google Books. Of course, that's an old version. The Google Books was the very first uh, version that I printed in 2000 and 2003, February 2003. It's that book because I immediately put it on Google Books as soon as I had the first one out, and it's still there. So it's the, it's the first version, which means there's some updates and typos and other things that might be in it that wouldn't be uh, in the later versions, but it's close enough. Thank you for talking to me. It was very interesting to talk to you, and I appreciate you took the time to talk to me. Well, it's my pleasure. It's one of the things I, I do with my time is uh, you know, I do these interviews and, and talks, and hopefully there'll be some people out there who will run into this interview and, and want to find out more and find something that really makes a difference to their life because it's not just physics theory, and it's not just metaphysics theory. This is about your life and how to live it 
and uh, you know meaning and significance to your existence and your happiness and your ability to make a difference in the world. It's, it's all about those kinds of things that are important to individuals. So that's the point of you know, both of us uh, taking this time to make these interviews is that uh, it's news that you can use. It's things that uh, people can benefit from if they, if they uh, spend some time learning it and trying to understand. If you want to understand more about Thomas Campbell's Big Toe, I suggest you read his trilogy, My Big Toe. Or check out the website, mybigtoe.com. You can also go to facebook.com slash mybigtoetomcampbell. And if you google My Big Toe and Thomas Campbell, there are lots of videos online that I recommend you watch. Now, what better way to end this episode than with a song called Minecraft's End by Eric Fullerton. To quote the lyrics, and I quote, You are alive on a flat, infinite world generated by a source code a million years old. End quote. See you in a week. Freedom is in the mind. I see the player you mean It is reading our thoughts as though they were To hear voices before players could read, sometimes disturbing, sometimes beautiful indeed. Does it know that we love it, that the universe is kind? A million years ago, it still works in the reality behind. Another feel air in your lungs. Dread.
it was lost in a story And the game was over Wake up